Alex, it is your host Kinsey. I'm here with another Missing Mondays episode. Missing Mondays is a segment that was created because at any given time, 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. While some of them are found alive or deceased, the majority are still missing today. It is my goal here at Crimeaholics to keep missing persons' name and information in the media to aid in their return home the best that I can. On this episode of Missing Mondays, I will be covering the disappearance of a 12-year-old little girl in the state of New York in 1993 that would uncover something much more evil and reveal an unknown serial killer. Wearing a pink t-shirt with the words guess who stitched on the front, turquoise blue shorts, and tiny brown sandals with dark hair cut into a bob, 12-year-old Sarah Ann Wood was spending her afternoon on August 18, 1993, doing one of her favorite things she loved most, riding her bike home from church in her quaint little hometown, Sequoia, New York. Sarah was an intelligent young girl who was always seen smiling and laughing with her friends. Her intelligence garnered a love for poetry and dancing. Sarah's love for the country singer Dolly Parton, or as my own daughter likes to call her, Tennessee's God, was never a hidden secret. You would often find that Sarah was singing and dancing to all of Dolly's songs. She knew every lyric by heart. School is a place where she often excelled not only as a student but in her social life. Many of Sarah's teachers look back on the times they spent teaching her and remember how contagious her laugh was, to the point where they would have to stop themselves from joining in on all the laughter with her peers. Sarah grew up at 300 Hackadam Road in Sequoia with her parents Robert and Francis and her two siblings Dustin and Nikki. Sequoia is located off of New York Route 8, only six miles south of Utica. In their neck of the woods, Sarah's father Robert was a preacher at their local church, Norwich Corners Presbyterian Church. The church was located not far from their home, giving Sarah the opportunity to ride her bike home from the church on her own without worry. On this particular day, Sarah was attending vacation Bible school at the church until the afternoon around 2.30 p.m. When the day came to a close, Sarah grabbed her poster board, a song church book, a vacation Bible school education book, and several transparencies and headed on her way riding her bike. Sarah was in the final stretch of being home when things would take a turn for the worst. Only one hour after Sarah left the church, Robert and Francis got a sinking feeling in their stomach that something was not right as their daughter was never late, always checked in and never stayed out past dark, but yet had not made it home. Robert and Francis stood in their home, pacing back and forth, feeling overwhelmed with worry. And Robert tells Francis that they cannot wait any longer to do something and that they needed to alert the authorities. Robert picks up the phone and dials the local police station. He anxiously awaits for someone to answer his phone call. Thankfully, a seasoned investigator answers Robert's call and Robert explains to him that his daughter never returned home and that this was highly unusual for her and they were desperate for the authorities' help. The investigator on the other end of the phone tells her parents that he is sorry to hear that she is missing and understands how difficult this may be and asks them to provide any information regarding Sarah that they can. 
Robert and Francis tell the investigator that Sarah is a 12-year-old little girl with short curly brown hair cut into a bob with bright blue eyes. She stands at exactly 5 feet tall and weighs approximately 90 pounds. They further tell the investigator that Sarah was last seen wearing a pink shirt, turquoise blue shorts, brown sandals, and would have been riding her pink bike home from Norwich Corner Presbyterian Church there in Sequoit. The investigator thanks Robert and Francis for the information information and tells them he feels it is best for them to come to the home to gather more details so they can launch a search for Sarah. When the authorities arrive at the Wood home, Robert and Francis sit with detectives where they assure them that their top priority is to find their daughter. They tell them that they understand the anguish and once again assure them that they are going to use every resource possible to locate Sarah and bring her home safely. But first, the investigator begins gathering more information, such as her close friends, her most recent activities, hobbies, and the last possible whereabouts. Her parents inform the investigators that Sarah had many friends within her neighborhood and that they all knew her well and knew all of their parents, and each of Sarah's friends and their parents liked her very well. This is a tight-knit community where everyone knows everyone. They go on to tell them that Sarah had spent her day at Vacation Bible School and was due home around 2.30 and 2.45 that afternoon. After getting the information they needed, the investigators gather outside of the Wood home and organize a thorough plan in the search for Sarah. Robert holds Frances' hand and tells her, don't worry, they are going to find our Sarah. With the child missing, the Sequoia Police Department knew they were going to need to call in backup. The lead investigator gathers all of the information received from Sarah's family and tells his team that they are going to need assistance with this extensive search so he would bring in the state police and the forest rangers for help. Police cars, state trooper vehicles, and forest ranger trucks gather as officers and rangers set up a command center. Hundreds of volunteers gather and are ready to join the search for Sarah. The lead investigator gathers his team, the state troopers, the forest rangers, and volunteers, and explains to them with the missing child time is of the essence, and he divides them into teams to start covering every inch of the surrounding areas. The search teams, armed with maps and equipment, spread out across the town, combing through fields, forest, and Sarah's neighborhood. The local community stood out in front of businesses and on every street corner, handing out flyers with little Sarah's face on them, trying every effort to get her face out to the public as quickly as possible. Not long after the flyers were being handed out, teal ribbons in honor of Sarah started being hung all around their tiny little town. To everyone's surprise, they did not have to search long before they found key pieces of evidence pertaining to Sarah's disappearance. Close to Sarah's home, they find her bike leaned up against a tree and all of her belongings scattered in the grass. But there are no signs of Sarah nearby. The investigators collect Sarah's belongings and examine each item carefully for more evidence. After the discovery of Sarah's pink bike and her belongings, the lead investigator agreed with Sarah's parents this is a matter of abduction and foul play. With time seriously of the essence, the local news media in Sequoia cover Sarah's disappearance. As Robert and Francis sit on the couch, they hear the news anchor on TV say, We have breaking news this evening. As a young 12-year-old little girl, Sarah Ann Wood has gone missing in the small community of Sequoia, and we are asking the community to assist in the search for Sarah. Then a beautiful picture of Sarah in her red cheerleading uniform pops up on the television screen. This broadcast had brought in over a thousand tips from the surrounding areas, and this gave Robert and Francis hope that Sarah would be coming home safely. 
As an army of volunteers were passing out flyers with Sarah's picture, walking through their neighborhood, knocking on doors, and talking to the residents, to her parents' surprise, little information had been turning up about her possible whereabouts and a possible suspect. A $150,000 reward for Sarah's safe return or information regarding her return was offered to the public. The investigators believed that this would surely bring about credible information, but all of the tips left them at a dead end. By the second week of Sarah's disappearance, her story had reached national headlines, bringing about more tips that the investigators would follow up on, only leading them to nothing more but dead ends. A cozy living room with the walls lined with pictures of Sarah, Francis and Robert share their equal worry that their daughter may not be coming home. They remind each other that they cannot lose hope because she is still out there somewhere and someone knows where she is. The lead investigator assures Robert and Francis that they are going to do everything they can to find Sarah. He explains that they have expanded the search parameter, got her story nationwide in the media, and they still have tips coming in daily. It is going to take the right tip to come in and they will have all the information needed to bring her home. But with Sarah's bedroom frozen in time, her favorite toys and books untouched on the shelves, and her favorite Dolly Parton soundtracks going unused, her parents wondered if their lives would ever be the same. Five months later, on January 7, 1994, it was a typical cold and gloomy morning in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. As most families, the Savries family was getting ready to head off to school and work. Much like the town of Sequoia, Pittsfield was an area where children could walk to and from school without worry. Pittsfield is two hours and an 18-minute drive from Sequoia. The Savries family's 12-year-old daughter, Rebecca, a Catholic student with brown hair, glasses, and braces, would be brave enough to bring police the information needed to crack Sarah's disappearance wide open. On the morning of January 7th, Rebecca was walking to school alone as she did each morning. Her mother always taught her to kick, scream, and punch if a person was ever to try and abduct her. But as most people hope, this is information that their children hopefully never has to utilize. As Rebecca was walking to school, a man got out of a pickup truck and approached her with a gun. He points the gun directly at Rebecca and demands that she get into his truck. Rebecca, being the brave and quick-witted girl she was, does not follow her mom's rules of kicking, screaming, and punching. The unknown man grabs a hold of Rebecca's backpack, forcing her towards his truck. She follows along with the man for about 20 yards when she realizes she had to do whatever it took to avoid being placed in his pickup truck. She knew once he got her into his pickup truck, she would not be going home alive. They walk 20 yards and Rebecca begins to fake an asthma attack that takes away her breath. This gave Rebecca the opportunity to break her arms free of her backpack and beginning running as fast as she could for help. Rebecca avoided looking back for the man, assuming he was coming after her. But to her surprise, the unknown man got into his truck with only her backpack in hand and drove off speeding right through two red lights. A nearby neighbor had witnessed the attempted abduction and was able to read the license plate on his truck. The neighbor quickly turns this information over to the police and they are officially on the hunt for a kidnapper in their local community. Thankfully, having a partial license plate number led police right to the man's house. 
A prior Bible school student with a rough upbringing turns into a child serial killer. 45-year-old Lewis Lent Jr., native to New York, was working as a janitor at the time of his arrest for the attempted kidnapping of Rebecca. Police cars come to a screeching halt outside of Lent's home. The authorities rush towards the front door, unsure of what they are about to walk into. Lentz answers the door, and the police begin to put him in handcuffs. The rest of the team enters Lent's home cautiously with their flashlights illuminating the dimly lit rooms. They search carefully from room to room until they reach the basement. The basement is eerie, and every step that they take echoes throughout the entire basement. The lead investigator warns his team to keep their eyes peeled and to continue to proceed with caution. They come across an inconspicuous plywood wall, but they realize that this is a fake wall, likely hiding something or someone on the other side. Quickly, they remove the plywood, revealing a hidden chamber. The chamber is small and chilling. And what exactly was Lent's plan with this half-built chamber? The lead investigator calls for backup and orders the team to carefully start collecting evidence because this is something much bigger than they originally imagined. After all of the evidence is collected from Lent's home, he is hauled off to the police station where he sits at a table across from the investigator, emotionless. As the investigator begins to question Lint, he holds back no hesitation and begins to reveal the truth of something much more sinister and evil than an attempted kidnapping. Lint tells the investigator that he was in the process of building the chamber to contain his victims. Without hesitation, Lint leans in closely and whispers to the detective that his favorite victims are female between the ages of 12 and 17 and that are, I quote, that are just now developing. Lent had plans to use the chamber as a holding cell, as he described, to bound and restrict his child victims to sexually assault them before he murdered them. As the questioning continues, Lent once more leans in and says, I did it, I took a boy, and I ended his life. It was a cold fall day on October 22, 1990 in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, when a 12-year-old boy named James Bernardo was walking outside of a movie theater where Lewis Lent worked as a janitor. As James was passing by, Lewis asked James if he wanted to earn money by helping him move chairs inside of the movie theater. He doesn't hesitate at the offer of money and follows Lewis inside of the movie theater. As the two of them enter the theater, Lewis pulls out a military-style knife and places it against James' throat and forces him to get into his truck. The two pull away from the movie theater and drive to Lewis's apartment not far from the theater. Lewis confesses to the sexual assault and hanging murder of James Bernardo on that fateful day. Lewis gives the investigators information as to where they can locate James's body. The investigators assumed that his body would be in Pittsfield, but they are stunned to find out that his body was much further away. Lewis had put James' body into his truck and drove him back to his hometown and put his body in a location near his childhood home. The investigators make note of the profile of his victims and that is when a light bulb went off and they realized the profile matches the profile of 12-year-old Sarah Ann Wood. The police do not waste any time questioning Lewis about Sarah, and he wastes no time in telling them the gruesome details surrounding Sarah's disappearance five months prior. 
Emotionless, Lewis Lent tells the investigators that his family is from New York and he would often take trips to visit. This is where he started to plan his next kidnapping and search for crime of opportunity. On August 18, 1993, he drove up to Sequoia from Pittsfield with a one-track mind. Who would be the next child he could kidnap and murder? He was driving through the small town of Sequoia when he spots a pre-teenage girl with brown short curly hair riding her bike all alone. Lewis slowly drives his van up to the young girl and exits the van with a military-style knife. He places the knife against Sarah's neck and forces her into his van. Once in his van, he bounds her ankles and wrists with duct tape and begins to drive her upstate into the Adirondack Mountains, where he continues to sexually assault her and end her life by supposed blunt force trauma to Sarah's head. Along with his confession to the murder of Sarah Ann Wood, Lewis draws a detailed map of where Sarah's body could be found. Investigators make the trek up into the mountains with high hopes that they were finally going to give Sarah's family some answers as to what happened to their daughter on that fateful day on August 18, 1993. When the police arrive to the location, they begin a massive search for her body, but nothing would turn up. Months later, after the winter conditions subsided, they returned to the area once more, hoping they would find Sarah Ann Wood. But that search would, too, churn up nothing. Thankfully, with his confessions, Lewis was arrested and charged with the kidnappings, sexual assaults, and murders of both James Bernardo and Sarah Ann Wood. Lewis was tried separately and was found guilty on all counts and was sentenced to life. While behind bars, Lewis was charged with the murder of a third victim, 16-year-old James Lucier, who would never be seen again after leaving his home on his bike. Much like Sarah Ann Wood, his body has never been located. Sarah Ann Wood's family and the lead investigators on her case have not stopped trying to locate her body and is asking for assistance for the public to report any information they have regarding the disappearance of Sarah Ann Wood. If you have any information, you are highly recommended to call the Sequoia Police Department at 315-765-2222. Crimeaholics, if you haven't already, I highly encourage you to join our Crimeaholics podcast discussion group on Facebook, or you can follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast, or you are more than welcome to follow me personally on Instagram at thisiskenzie, K-E-N-Z-I underscore. Crimeholics, as always, be aware and take care. Music.